Let the games begin. By taking some time out of our daily lives to sit down and have a little chat. Chit chat. Yeah, chit chat. Thank you. Conversation must be stimulating. There's still, you need a set of aesthetic guidelines to put it in social perspective. I think. Maybe what we need here is a fresh perspective. Fresh points of view, stimulating conversation. Stop. I thought it would put things in perspective for you. Let's begin. All right. Episode 13. Welcome back to the podcast. Today we have uh, Scott Wiener. Uh, he's an entrepreneur, software engineer, thinker, and a longtime friend of mine. He has a background in computer science, linguistics, philosophy, and math. He's also a futurist uh, with an interest in using technology to push the limits of human potential. Um, so, Scott, welcome to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you, Sergey. Thank you, Peter. I'm really excited to be here. Yeah, awesome. We were, we were talking a little bit before uh, we started recording about uh, kind of intros and background. Um, Maybe why don't we why don't we just do a quick recap? I guess again, just so the listeners can kind of get a sense of uh, your background, your interests, and uh, you know what you're working on. Uh, sure. So I uh, just by way of deep background, I grew up in New York City, and so that has shaped me uh, to a great extent that isn't always obvious when I interact with people from other places. So um, keep that in mind as we as we get into the conversations. I went to school in the University of Michigan uh, to follow the work of one particular person, John Holland, who was doing some of the only interesting looking AI work that I could find. There was a lot of activity in AI, a lot of interest in it, but most of it just seemed like smoke and mirrors, you know, symbolic systems and rule systems and things. It didn't seem like it was going to lead anywhere profound. But John Holland was working uh, on what he called classifier systems, which was the, the very beginning of genetic and evolutionary algorithms in computer science. And so while I was just a lowly undergraduate, uh, it was like this uh, siren call <laughs> to go and see what was going on there. And uh, I was lucky to not only get to study with him, but he had some very interesting grad students working with him at that point who went on to be foundational um, in, in some institutions later on that explored, you know, more kind of chaotic systems and, uh, you know, nonlinear systems and, and things. So that's, that's certainly been an interest of mine. Um, at school, I, I've been interested in computers, but computers in, in my early days were uh, basically command line beasts, mostly of, of Unix of one kind or another. But I had been to a demonstration at Brookhaven Labs on Long Island, which was a particle accelerator government lab. And there was a demo there of a computer system that could answer a very narrow range of questions, which was, who was in Congress from this state in these years, uh, and and that was it. That was the whole that was the whole data set that that this question and answering system could handle. But it it caught my interest as a as a young person that you know if you could just incrementally increase this set of things you could ask it questions about, um, you'd wind up with a really interesting tool for something that I, I didn't have words for yet but I came to realize was called augmentation. And that is how can you take 
human beings with their strengths and their weaknesses as biological entities and amplify their abilities to be able to do more. And this happened, of course, over, over history um, in, in, the, in the physical sense, right, that we've amplified the strength of our muscles with, you know, machines with the lever and with the winch and uh, pulleys and through hydraulics and, you know, the, the huge range of amplifications of our, of our physical strength. We've also amplified our senses, right, with telescopes and microscopes and, and that, you know, Sensing in, in the large is such a big part of what's happening now in, in our society as we kind of wire it up and go to these billions and then potentially trillions of edge devices. So this, this notion of augmentation, we'd, we'd walk this path a couple of times already as a civilization, but cognitive augmentation is really what tickled me. And this little computer system at this lab was kind of lit the fire for me of, of a direction to, to start looking. So I wound up going to Michigan, um, following not just this, this AI thing, but also looking to study this general notion of augmentation, cognitive augmentation. I found a bunch of prior work, which is now, you know, well, well understood and, and, um, and available to everybody and, and forms kind of a substrate a lot of these conversations. Back then it was these things were, were buried a little bit and it was hard to find them. But things like Vannevar Bush's uh, original article, as we may think, talking about the Memex and and you know other works, I, I was lucky to get exposed to some of Ted Nelson's writings at a fairly young age. He had just published Computer Lib. For those of you who are familiar with that, the big oversized two-sided self-published book um, that's basically a paste up of a million interesting ideas. And so I knew there were other people out there thinking about these things, but unfortunately at university, there was no program to go and study this. We were still kind of siloed into our traditional departments. There wasn't even a cognitive science program yet. It was, it was too early. So uh, I ha just happened to luck out and got into uh, what they call the honors program there, which let you craft a degree by mixing and matching various interests uh, as long as you got approval for it. So as you said, I wound up studying a pretty, pretty broad range of things, and you could sense that there was a there there where these things would all come together. But you'd also look at the state-of-the-art computer systems with their command lines and arcane commands and go, there's no way that this approach to delivering augmentation is ever going to work for the average normal person. And I considered myself an average normal person. And so I, um, I kept looking around. I came across some of the work that Alan Kay and the team was doing at Xerox Park on, you know, graphical user interfaces and that was like just a huge wake-up call but i actually got a chance to play with a couple of lisp machines for those of you who are lisp programming language fans lisp, mach lisp machines were dedicated hardware and quite expensive workstations 30 50 70 000 single user computers that just happened to execute the Lisp language um, very, very effectively. 
and the environments, we call them IDEs today, but in, in list machines, everything is in one environment. So there wasn't like you had an operating system and then an app you were running and then a, a file system somewhere else. It was one uniform experience. Um, there were a couple of things that people had written in that space uh, to kind of augment this command line orientation. And one of them was called DWIM, D-W-I-M, which is do what I mean. And now all of a sudden you could see, you know, even even the little command line we can make a lot smarter if we aren't so literal about literal about taking what you type in and, and just following it blindly. So anyway, so I, you know, I got very excited about the potential of graphical user interface and machine intelligence to come together uh, and deliver an experience that would be capable of augmenting the cognitive powers of everybody and not just a few people. And that, that pulled me into uh, computer graphics in its, in its early days. So there's a, uh, under the ACM, which is a professional organization for, uh, you know, for computing scientists and, and engineers back in the day and still, still around today, uh, under the ACM, they have subgroups, and one of them was a special interest group in computer graphics called SIGGRAPH. And SIGGRAPH published a journal, but they also held an annual conference. And the annual conference of SIGGRAPH is where you went to not just learn about recent research in 3D graphics, but they had what they called the film night. And so they would have this uh, juried uh curated collection of cutting edge computer graphics examples that the crowd would gather to watch at night. And it was like, it was like a, a rock concert, right? People were incredibly excited. People would wait online for hours to get a good seat, to be near the front to, to, of, of, the, of, the, of the large auditoriums to, to get a good view of the screen. And you would literally see imagery that human beings had never been able to create before, right? You were among the first to ever see um, still images, moving images uh, like this. And it was, a, it was a fun time because progress was being made so quickly, even though it would take hours or days to render every frame on the computers of the day, the techniques of creating the imagery were evolving really fast. The, the algorithms, but also the tricks um, to make to please the eye, but to uh, but to simplify the computation. So there's this weird juxtaposition of augmentation, cognitive augmentation, graphical user interfaces, and, and 3D graphics that kind of all to me seemed part of a single picture. Um, but there was no, I didn't have a clear path for where to go out of school with that passion. And, and it, it really did, it burned pretty brightly. It was an incredibly exciting time. And then a friend uh, showed me Apple's Lisa, which for everyone who doesn't remember or didn't know, was a graphical user interface computer that came out before the Macintosh. And so the Lisa was Apple's first attempt at a, at a kind of commercial, you know, lower priced uh, computer for everybody and not just for command line jockeys. 
And the Lisa was expensive, $10,000, as I recall, per computer back then when, when you know, a dollar was worth more. And uh, it was pretty slow and pretty limited and, and yada, yada, yada. But it was a coherent uh, simplification and, in some senses, an enhancement on what the research labs had been doing, like Park and, and Xerox Park and other places, uh, productized for the market. So that really, that really hooked me. And I had a friend who worked in Apple's distribution network who got me a Lisa to play with. And um, you know, even though it had a you know, very slow processor and minimal RAM, I decided to kind of follow my passion for 3D graphics and start writing a very simple 3D modeler that ran on the Lisa. And one thing led to another, and the Lisa never really gained traction uh, be, just because of the price and, and uh, other things. So the next generation, when Jobs kind of took over the Macintosh project and turned it into a baby Lisa, um, the Mac got announced. And now all of a sudden, even though it was still $2,500, you could see that these techniques of graphical user interfaces could really come out and serve a mass market. And uh, Microsoft was you know, doing related work with, with Windows and um, IBM had a different operating system called OS2. They were doing a similar graphical user interface called Presentation Manager. So you could, you could kind of sense that the wind was changing. And while the computer science pundits and the computer press still belittled graphical user interfaces as, as toys, um, you know, it was pretty obvious that if one third of your brain is dedicated to visual processing, having a visual computer was going to be a lot higher bandwidth interface to the brain than a, a command line was going to be. And so I uh, started my first company um, right out of school in Ann Arbor, Michigan. It was called Ann Arbor Softworks. And we did uh, graphical uh, like painting programs. We did some games. We did a word processor. Uh, we were working on a couple of other things that were uh, really kind of bleeding edge at the time and just so much fun to go and explore the potential of this new class of, of computer and this new type of, of user experience. And we eventually got acquired by a large database company called Ashton Tate at the time. And that was that was my first taste of, of a lot of things, right? Of working in a team, of starting a company of, of which I knew nothing, of doing the dance, raising money in the Midwest during the industrial meltdown. Um, it was an incredible education. It was intense. Uh, it was all consuming. It probably was, wasn't incredibly healthy, uh, but wow, what an education that was. And we just happened to luck out and luck will, <laughs> luck will be a big part of our conversation today. We just happened to luck out that what we were doing was attractive to, you know, much larger companies that wanted to make this generational shift into these more visual forms of, of computation. Um, and then I was always getting with that focus on augmentation. Uh, I spent a couple of years at Ashton Tate helping to transition 
our stuff, but also to help them think about the move to these graphical user interfaces across what was then a very broad product line. They were a, a, one of the dominant players in the market. And, but I'm still interested in augmentation, right? That's really kind of the, the recurring focus. So um, I started another company called Common Knowledge to do what at that point was called groupware, which was how do you get teams of people collaborating together digitally? Um, that was a, a generally new idea. And I won't go into a lot of the details there. There were structural issues about IT organizations that controlled computation, controlled you know, budgets and purchasing and vendor relationships uh, inside companies. Uh, that they weren't really psyched about needing to spin up new server hardware to let some team collaborate with itself. So we came up with a way of using peer-to-peer -peer patterns to let teams collaborate across what were then new things called local area networks, which is just basically one computer talking to another computer in your office. Uh, yes, there was a time when even that wasn't wasn't possible. Uh, using peer-to-peer -peer techniques to 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 do collaboration that way, so we could bypass the gatekeepers of of IT and their their disinterest in 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 spinning up new new server infrastructure. And so that was that was pretty great fun. Also, uh, that's a whole you know story in and of itself. The technology there was interesting. The, the journey was interesting. And we got acquired by QuickMail, which was one of the large email companies at that time. They were looking to go from email to collaboration, which was that next step. Uh, Esther Dyson wrote a popular uh, newsletter for the tech industry. And for a couple of years in a row, every year she would she would coin it the year of, of the work group, the year of collaboration as teams. Uh, but it was it was a battle, right? It, it, it was it was tough to uh, to get organizations to understand that this kind of augmentation was actually really valuable and valuable in a nonlinear way for letting groups of people accomplish things that the same number of individuals couldn't accomplish. Uh, so that that led me down that path, and then uh, the internet was you know kind of coming on strong, and it was pretty clear that. Our existing approach to search, uh, which was just pre-Google, um, this kind of you know keyword search with no authority, no reputation, none of the none of the algorithmic enhancements that Google pioneered. Um, that that basic keyword search was not going to be a great solution. So we um, again mixing kind of the notion of augmentation, machine learning, and linguistics. We uh, started a company called Relevance that did a semantic search engine. And Relevance was search domain specific. So you'd actually um, create an ontology for a particular domain, let's say pharmaceuticals, where you'd say, you know, these are the compounds, these are symptoms, these are conditions. And you're kind of describing a vocabulary and a set of relationships among the ideas of the vocabulary. Um, but it's just data. It's like a metadata set about a domain. And then you would point it at collect corpus of documents, right? Like a, 
you know, FDA filings or, or uh, pharmaceutical patents or things. And it would index these documents, not by their keywords, but by the core ideas that they expressed. And then we put together a very early web application user interface, which was um, what they called at that time Ajax, right? So it was, you didn't have to reload web pages to see changes. Uh, it worked as an interactive application, totally normal today, but at that time, uh, bleeding edge. And so for those of you who are familiar with, with databases and something called OLAP or multi-dimensional analysis, we basically took these techniques of slicing and dicing along kind of dimensions of, of meaning and brought them out of the space of structured data, quantitative data, the way you'd have in, in, the, in the database and the, and the data analytics space. We took those techniques over to the unstructured information space on top of these collections of documents. And you could slice and dice and, and do things that are called pivoting around in the space of these uh, plain text documents. Well, this was an eye opener. This was really exciting stuff. And we were invited up onto the main stage at uh, Chris Shipley's demo conference. This was a conference, annual conference, where Chris and her team would select 25 companies, I think that number's about right, to uh, come up on stage over the course of a few days and show off what we were doing. They would get hundreds or potentially, I don't even know, thousands of submissions and, and choose a handful that they thought would, would kind of wow the audience. So we were up on the main stage and some of the, some very large companies were represented by teams of people there in the audience, keeping their eye out for, for something interesting. And uh, we did our demo up there and we were just swamped by people that were wowed by this, you know, pattern of interaction with knowledge that, that they've really never seen before. So we eventually uh, wound up getting acquired by a, company called Documentum, and Documentum got rolled up into a big storage company, and they got this this content group got acquired by OpenText, where, where this lives now. Um, but that was also a really fun and interesting journey. And uh, again, steps, right, steps towards this, this notion of augmentation, coming at it from, from different points of view. And um, Anyway, so there were a couple more after that. Most recently uh, was a company called C9. And C9 did was a cloud analytics and predictive modeling SaaS play to help companies optimize their revenue generating activities. And, um, you know, that was a very, very focused on business, on particular processes in business and uh, particular types of data that companies were collecting about their marketing activities, their sales activities, their you know billing and receivable activities in, in finance, uh, and putting that all together into a simple cohesive picture, not just historical analytics, but also predictive, so you could understand within ranges some of the potential outcomes of different decisions. And this was, again, to me, another expression of this notion of augmentation where you were powering it with 
structured data and machine learning models to be able to make smarter decisions about, about what was going to happen next. So we wound up that um, C9 wound up getting acquired also by a, by a big kind of sales enablement company called Inside Sales. And um, I took a little bit of time off. And then, you know, <laughs> I can't take very much time off. I, I, I caught the bug again. Um, and, and then I'm doing a, a new project now that's called Pop Doc, P-O-P-D-O-C. And um, Pop Doc is really focused on helping people harness the value, maybe hidden value, in this all digital world that we live in today. And so we focus on helping people make sense of the kind of overwhelming amount, but also pace of information flow in the modern world. And again, we're focused on um, professionals as an entry point uh, in this general space of productivity tools, right? So your, your word processor is a productivity tool, your task management app is a productivity tool, your note-taking app is a productivity tool. We have a bunch of these productivity tools that we've all been living in for decades, but to a large extent, they're all oriented around creating information, like a word processor or a slide maker or a diagramming product, creating new information, or they're oriented around bookkeeping. And I don't mean that in the negative, just you know, kind of bookkeeping of one way or another, like project management tools. And they're great and, and required and they're evolving nicely generation after generation and take advantage of all the progress we're making um, with, with cloud computing and, and, and higher, higher performance networks and mobile devices. But none of them, <laughs> to, to our point of view, none of them are focused on where the, the largest opportunity is, which is helping people and teams and organizations make sense out of this information flow that we're all in the middle of right now. Now, people still have to make sense of the world, so they use a bunch of different tools, right? They use you know, productivity tool A to copy and paste into productivity tool B. They'll save a bookmark in tool C. They'll do a clipping and, and pop it into, you know, note-taking tool D. Uh, but the person is at the center of all that. It's, a, it's kind of a manual activity. It's an ad hoc activity. Everyone does, you know, as best as they can. Um, Kind of with this with this notion of harnessing all this information and and making sense of it and being able to kind of see patterns and 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 make better decisions and align groups and and hear more voices and uh, just it just so many exciting possibilities in the space that it, it that to our to our perception what wasn't being addressed head on. And we thought there was an opportunity there to go and, and address this head on um, because we think it's potentially the largest greenfield opportunity and productivity. If you look at how professionals spend their time, about a third of their time um, is spent basically finding information, massaging information, managing information, looking for patterns information. Um, and we're doing it, you know, basically by hand right now. 
And so the ability to come in with a, with a solution, a cloud service that, that got rid of all the administrative overhead and simplified the manual work and, and, you know, brought automation and, and other kinds of things, again, to help augment what individuals and teams and organizations can do with this flow of information. And competitive advantage, um, you know, with all the consolidation that's happening in global capitalism, um, competitive advantage really comes from either scale, where you're, you're playing a, a very particular game. But if you're, if you're an innovator, if you're trying to, uh, you know, do something new, uh, it comes from just being smarter, right? Spotting opportunities earlier, being able to understand them better, being able to align and act on on what you've discovered, or or to discover challenges earlier, and to be able to you know plan around uh, the challenges. Like these ag- these little smart agile organizations, I think are the are the path forward. The ecosystem is defined by the behemoths, right? They're they're not going away, but there's still opportunity. It's just in different kind of ecological niches. And to be smart and agile in those niches, you're going to need better sense-making tools than the ones we have today. So that's that's what we're focused on. Um, and it's uh, exciting. Uh, it's challenging. It's, um, you know, as much about storytelling as it is about technology because it's it's a, a new way of thinking about what's possible in this in the space of of digital tools and you know who they impact and, and how they're adopted and everything else and that's you know that's a that's an entire conversation there by itself but it's uh it's it's really we're right in the middle of it now we're, we're getting close to our alpha and uh so far it looks like you know it looks like we've got lightning in a bottle but you know execution is everything so we've got to stay focused and disciplined and just and just keep moving forward so (laughs) that's a very long introduction to me and and kind of a a little brief picture of my journey through the world to date cool it's good to um uh pick this up also after conversation with Philip last week, uh, got your, your perspective and kind of background and, and the arc that led to this. Um, if I had a question, I guess, from all of this, uh, the history, kind of how you, how you got to where you are is what are, what's your sense on the current sort of trends? I think the last time we spoke in person was like probably before I was, I was just kind of like dipping my toe into the world of software engineering and a lot of a lot of stuff's changed like since then. It must have been like 2014 or so, 2015. Um, what are what are some of the bigger trends you kind of see? I know we talked about productivity software and and being able to make sense of large quantities of information and combining it, visualizing it, interacting with it, interfacing with it. But where is that? What's what's been the the arc? I guess that you've seen in that time. Uh, wow. So there's so many different ways to answer that question. Um, you know, while I'm very focused on, you know, the, the business that, that we're working to build right now, I'm also, you know, very focused on the world that we live in and the trends, um, 
that look like they're going to have the most impact on the lives of the most people, right? So, um, you know, I, I, don't, <laughs> I don't want to wax philosophical, but, you know, my perspective is that we live in a universe that really doesn't care. And it's not necessarily hostile. It's not necessarily benign. It, it really just doesn't care. So we, as creatures with agency, we get to decide for ourselves what we value, what, like what matters. And you can take any system of thought that we've, that we've created or discovered, depending on your, on your bent, uh, as a civilization, and take it to extremes and wind up with you know, optimization patterns that are good for a few, but not, not very good for the many. And my, my personal value system is that because there's a quote, and I'm, I'm going to forget who it's from. I can look it up, but um, there's a quote that goes something like, and this is a, a, an animal rights uh, person. And there's a quote that says something like, uh, it's not whether they're intelligent. It's not whether they can speak, it's whether they can suffer. And, you know, I think therefore I am, but you're also experiencing all the other facets of being alive also. And you don't need to be very cognitively advanced as a species to be able to experience suffering. And my value system is that, you know, suffering is, is bad and that we should try to minimize suffering as we go on this great adventure of, of building our civilization. And so the trends that matter to me personally are trends around access, um, access to food, access to water, access to healthcare, access to education, that these, these basic things that you know, in some parts of the world, we just take for granted. Uh, in other parts of the world, these are dramatically unsolved problems. And we're a very wealthy society. And we have these markets that are phenomenal optimization engines for coordinating <laughs> all these parties that um, do not see eye to eye. But markets create an environment where we can kind of work these things out um, in an emergent way, right? From all of our collective behaviors, what emerges is some kind of order from, from the chaos. But as optimization engines, markets can only optimize what can be measured. And you see this in, in discussions about carbon taxes and global warming. If we're not reflecting the extern externalities of what companies do in, in the marketplace's optimization process, then we've got a distorted view of cost and we've got a distorted view of value. And so we're going to optimize our, ourselves to a place we don't want to be in. And so I don't, I don't want to get prescriptive because I'm not smart enough <laughs> to be able to solve these problems. But the trends that interest me are these trends towards democratization of access. Like I, I think 
I, you know, I'm, I'm geeky. I, I, I read a lot of science fiction growing up. So I, I often put myself in kind of third person mode and think if I was a rational and curious alien coming to our planet and looking at it, what would my report card be? Right? What would my entry in the Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy be for Earth? Um, and, you know, to me, it's, it's disappointing that we're not living up to our potential as a, as a species to democratize access to these foundational kinds of services to the degree that we should. So, um, the trends here are there are political trends, there are technological trends, there are economic trends. Um, I tend to, you know, stay, stay connected uh, at a deep technology level, uh, especially to software, but also, you know, the kind of the full stack, right? Like material science is fascinating. Uh, particle physics is fascinating. Cosmology is fascinating because it's all about the, the, the building blocks, right? Like what, it, what is this place we live in? What is this universe? And, you know, fun questions like, you know, where did it come from? And did it, did it actually come from anywhere? And how does it work? And, you know, it's just like a tinkerer's view. It's like, you know, oh, I see how this works. Like, like what's the next level? But, but all of that intellectual curiosity goes into one box. And then this kind of insistence on, getting suffering down and access to basic services up, they, they kind of go in another box, right? So one's an intellectual passion, but one's, you know, emotional, kind of a moral passion. And, um, and so trends there are things like, you know, so what about access to water? You know, are there, you know, simple things we can do are they policies? Are they devices? Are they, uh, you know, to farming techniques? Like, what what can we do right now to make life better for for people whose lives are, are not as good as they should be? And then you get, of course, into the into the laws of unintended consequences, right? Where, like in India, they develop these very inexpensive uh, pumps manual pumps for getting water out of the ground so you know crop yields could go up and small subsistence farmers could you know start having an excess and and using communal cell phones actually selling to a market at a price and like incredible right just in incredible that the simple little device could could change people's lives to that extent but then you get to the unintended consequence, which is, oh, the aquifers are all drying out <laughs> and now the pumps <laughs> don't work because there's no, the groundwater is too deep, right? So the, the simple, I, I'm very, uh, I'm very hesitant about simple solutions and really interested in trends around things like governance. So how do we build organizations that can work over time? to optimize for outcomes that aren't necessarily profit generating outcomes, but are still compelling and important outcomes. And so, you know, things like uh, DAOs, right? Distributed autonomous organizations and some of the patterns that are coming out of these fully distributed, distributed governance um, 
processes in the in the uh, in the crypto space. They're fascinating, right? Just fascinating. So, um, uh, Scott, I have a question yeah. for you about the not living up to potential um, trends in the birth rate, and then if you just had to make a wild guess on what would be you know, the number of people that could live up to their potential on earth. Um, right. Cause I think there are some places where most people can live up, you know, as you're saying the potential, they have uh, access to all the things you previously mentioned. And then there are other places that they, you know, uh, there are different struggles. So I, in my mind, those two things work against each other, right? As you continue to have um, a larger population, then the needs grow. Uh, but on the flip side, I think most industrial nations are at either a, a neutral or slightly negative birth rate. So uh, maybe there's already a built-in uh, limiter that's starting to take place. But just some of your thoughts on that. Sure. Yeah. So birth rate correlation with wealth, you know, like, you know, that's, I don't know if it's a, if it's been codified firmly, but it's certainly ob- observable that there's an inverse correlation between birth rates and, and wealth. And also with the empowerment of women uh, to make, to have decision-making power, economic power, across biology and, and finance and, and, and child rearing and things um, also has a, a measurable impact on, on birth rates. I think, you know, we live in a universe of near infinite stuff, right? There's near infinite energy, there's near infinite materials, but most of it's pretty far away and not all that useful to us at the state we're in right now. But what you also find happening over the last couple of decades is that material goods are using fewer and fewer resources to deliver the same or greater benefit. And so there's a, there are a couple of trends that um, kind of will increase the, the carrying capacity of the planet. Like certainly today, there's plenty of food and water for everyone. It's just not distributed equally, right? And so if you look at if you look at what we're shipping on all those ships that are backed up at the Suez Canal right now, um, you know, we're spending an awful lot of energy moving things around that are, you know, they're not essential to survival. Because there's you know, in the market systems that we have there, it's profitable to do so, right? It's a, it's a good use of value um, to do these things because it generates more value. Uh, whereas there's not economic incentives for doing this to bring equal access to the world. So, so I don't, there's plenty of food and water to go around, right? There's plenty, but it's, it's not distributed evenly across the planet and that's about incentives and systems of governance right it's it's not about it's not about the the raw material question and over the last few decades we've seen this this very very dramatic trend that 
physical goods are using less and less resources to accomplish the same or, or greater ends, right? As we get better at manufacturing, as we get better at materials, as we get better at, at working at smaller scales, um, you know, a lot of the waste of the early industrial bootstrap phase of our civilization uh, is going to get trimmed away. Like pollution has gone from a kind of a, a way of thinking about an economic benefit. Oh, we can just dump this stuff to actually being a measure of waste, right? There's something inefficient about our manufacturing process if we're generating a lot of waste product. And so, um, you know, let's think about that in a different way and, and actually get economic benefit from it. So anyway, so tr I think there's, there's interesting trends all over. Um, right now we live in this kind of information is everything paradigm, right? So when we think about, you know, <laughs> if you want to know how a society is, is, is focusing its, its sense-making apparatus, just look at the metaphor for how the brain works, right? Is the brain gears? Is it steam? Is it hydraulics? Is it the telegraph? You know, now it's all information, you know, like, so it's, it's a, another step in our understanding of the universe. We're using these metaphors that embody the time we live in to kind of explain things and to try to understand how to look into the future a little bit and make better decisions. But um, the, the thing, these things all build on each other. They're not ends in themselves. And it's really important to always keep in mind that the map and the territory are different. And we have lots of great map techniques, languages that we use to describe things in a way, in a way that makes them understandable to us and our fairly limited cognitive abilities. But we shouldn't lose sight of the fact that they don't accurately reflect the world. They're, they're simplifications of the world to make it tractable for us. And one of the reasons I got interested in augmentation in the first place and, and remain so to this day is that in conjunction with our machines, we can have maps that are much more useful and much more accurate and that help us understand not just what's happening, but what, what we can do to change the futures uh, that we live in. That was a great, uh, great quote I saw the other day. And it basically said, you know, we all talk about the butterfly effect, right? Which is if you go back in time and kill a butterfly, you know, maybe humans never evolved and the dinosaurs are, are, are the dominant species. So we always talk about this impact that tiny changes can have in the past, but we never think about that butterfly effect from today going forward, that tiny changes today can lead to dramatically different tomorrows um, and that we should really start thinking this way. I'm a member of an organization in San Francisco called The Long Now, uh, and it's a um, uh, it's a nonprofit. Sorry. Yeah, it's a nonprofit that's oriented around helping us all think longer term, right? Think in hundred year, thousand year, ten thousand year timeframes, uh, not just in quarters, you know, months, quarters, or, or, or a couple of years. And they're working on a project uh, called the Clock of the Long Now which is a, a mechanical clock. It's going to be buried in a cavern in the Southwest uh, 
that will ring, you know, like once in a thousand years or something. And, you know, you get to all these interesting questions about what, what will the world be like then? You know, will there be people? And, and if there are people, what will they be like? And what will their societies be like? And, you know, we, we, we put, uh, we put, you know, records on the, on the Voyager spacecraft to go and encode our civilization's knowledge for aliens, you know, as this, as this, uh, probe goes deeper into space, but how do we preserve the information for our, for our children and their children? And, uh, you know, we see bit rot, bit rot on the internet every day. Um, you know, as we move from, you know, chiseling stone to, you know, metal to paper, and now we're digital, uh, you know, do we run the risk of being overfitted to our niche and losing resiliency uh, in, 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 in the space of unexpected futures. And certainly COVID was a, you know, an interesting, very small, but interesting taste of, you know, an, an unexpected future, even though most, most people understood that this was, this was going to happen and it's going to continue to happen. But we just weren't prepared for it at all from a, a point of resiliency in society. And so are we going to take this opportunity to say, huh, we have this governance uh, mechanism based around markets and, you know, optimizing for certain outcomes. And do we need to start adding notions of resiliency into our organizations and, and into our governance models? so that we actually encourage resiliency to be baked into the, the systems that power our society? Or are we going to do a 1918 pandemic style, you know, out of sight, out of mind, and, and go back to business as usual? So, you know, we, we're, we're lucky that we're getting tested in small ways. While the pandemic was incredibly disruptive, it was actually fairly mild compared to what's possible and, you know, what what might be coming next. And so can we, the universe has given us an opportunity to learn our lesson in a, in a safe space and will we learn it or, or not? So I, it's a non, non simple reply to your question about trends. Sure. Um, man, so many directions I want to take this. Have you read a book called the information by the way, by James Gleek? You heard of? Oh Neil? yes, uh, I can't. I don't. I think it's on the shelf, but I think I've only flipped through it. I, I have not sat down to do a read it cover to cover. So when I um I when I I think it was a YouTube video that originally kind of prompted me to look into the book, and then when I got into it, I was just completely enthralled. And first person I recommended to Peter. I think he's finished it by now. But the first person I thought of when I read it was you, actually, um, because it talked a lot about these. This there's this underlying thread between all these different fields of you know physics and biology and language, and it all has to come. It all comes back to this idea of information. So there's a question in there. What is I guess would be what is what what is information to you? Yeah. So this is this is what I was kind of referencing before the fact that we're we're in this particular period of time when our new tool is this is the notion of information as an explanatory framework 
for, for all kinds of things. And so, um, uh, you know, information is, uh, I, I guess let's take a step back for a sure. second. So, um, there's a difference between information in the metaphysical sense and information in the physical sense and information in the biological sense, right? So Gregory Bateson, the naturalist, said of biological systems that information is a difference that makes a difference, right? And then you can go all the way to the other extreme of metaphysics and, and the bleeding edge of physics, physics itself and say, is information always a physical or are there non-physical representations of information? And um, and I'm fascinated by both ends of that spectrum, but also all, all the points in between. And one of the things that's become a recurring theme in, in my attempting just to understand all of these different disciplines that are actually all kind of trying to touch the same elephant um, is the notion of history, right? Or, or memory is a better way to put it. And so memory turns out to be foundational to all kinds of things, uh, you know, from algorithms to, uh, to learning systems, to adaptation. Um, so if you think about, uh, biological evolution, DNA, what is DNA but a form of memory that's carried forward independent of any particular organism that kind of captures the best practices at the level of proteins and, and protein expression, right? But it captures the best practices of all <laughs> of all of biology that has come before, right? So the ability to use DNA to remember things that were successful in the past is what kind of lets evolution happen. And memory is what powers the immune system, right? So we don't need, you know, biological time to learn about fighting off a new pathogen, right? We need, we need uh, just a uh, short time, like within the lifespan of an organism, and, you know, COVID is a good example, right? Inoculations and, you know, four weeks or so, and, and, and you've got your body trained. You've created memories in your immune system of, of how to fight off this new virus. And the, the passing down of, of immune responses from mother to child um, is, you know, memory and transference of memory, right? So, so the nature learns at multiple levels on its own and the neural structures that animals have developed and i don't want to speak to plants because i don't want to i don't want to make any uh, judgment calls if some people believe that plants have uh chemical learnings and things and i'm just too ignorant to that space to, to be able to talk about it but uh neural structures are also right they're they're ways of remembering the past and changing the weights and connections between uh, neurons, uh, you know, whether biological or these very simplified mathematical models we have it in our, in our machine learning algorithms, uh, also encoding, compressing, 
generalizing experience into these memories that we can use to be predictive about the future. So uh, I think civilizations do this. Sorry. You said something really interesting there about uh, memory and and because it seems like there is some tie to being able to predict the future, right? And being able to kind of forecast, right? Like absolutely think about human beings, right? You can kind of map out, you have a sense of where you're going to be and, and you have like a mental model of the world that's much bigger than say a single cell like a bacteria or something. And so your, your ability to kind of predict the future is, is tied to then sort of your memory and your ability to make use of that memory. So I, I think that's absolutely true. These, these, these three things, you know, evolution and, um, and uh, immune system and, and neural structures, these are all uh, kind of a gift, right? Biology has given us this gift. And we live in a universe where, where we can be given this gift, right? So there's a, there's a selection bias there also. Um, but what we've done as a civilization is at least as impressive as what the universe has given us, right? And what we've been able to do with that in terms of memory, in terms of coordinated action, in terms of trying to uh, visualize a future and, and and be able to to head towards it as some intentional act, and you know these this is pretty recent stuff for us as, as humans, right? We were you know we were subsistence farmers not that long ago, and you know my great grandfather, grandfather, father, myself, my kids, my grandkids, we all had pretty much identical lives. I mean. You know, governance came and went, um, and climate, you know, weather came and went. But uh, we weren't we weren't idealizing a future and trying to to walk towards it. So there's a maturity. There's these phases of maturity of of civilizations as they become capable of not just thinking about these things, but about acting on them. And then it's. Um, it's kind of a question more of morals and ethics about if you are capable of thinking these thoughts, are you also responsible for doing something to them? Um, and that's, you know, we make, we make these decisions personally, but you can imagine a society coming where these are codified into the culture. And the same way there are things that, you know, culturally were, you know, were totally okay, you know, 100, 150 years ago. They're now abhorrent or, you know, culture in, in one geography is, it's, you know, it's okay and, and culture in a different geography is not. Or vice versa. Yeah, exactly. Right, like stuff today that, that's commonplace. Uh, there's a good quote I like about that, that it's no, no technological or no technology is uh, strictly, I guess, technological, like or no, no change is just strictly technological. It also has a cultural impact. So like the car... Yeah, so- uh, absolutely. Kevin Kelly wrote a really interesting book. I don't know if you guys have read any of Kevin Kelly's books. All of his books are, are interesting. Um, but he wrote a book called The Technium. T-E-C-H-N-I-U-M. If I get my memory serving me right. And he basically posits this co-evolution of humans and, and their technologies. And that humans, you know, certain modern humans... Could simply could not exist without without their technologies and technologies here are broad, right? Political structures, government structures, our technologies, 
uh, you know, writing systems, mathematics, on language, yeah. technologies, yeah, and uh, and mechanisms, right, and, and 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 algorithms and things are technology. So it's it's not about any one of those things. It's about we co-evolve with our tools, right? That's what makes us so unique. And um, you know, it's very possible that our ability for language is the single enabler that let us start this process of co-evolving with our tools because language gives you memory. Again, memory comes back, right? It gives you the ability to learn from the experiences of others. And, you know, oral language, there's limits on how that can spread and how that and, and how that gets preserved. Written language, you know, that, that was a step change. It went from, uh, that's, what, that's what enabled civilization as we, as we know it, right? The ability to write things down and, and have it transfer across time and space. So um, this, in Technium, Kevin talks about this co-evolution of humans and their tools and actually has this interesting, and I, I don't, I can't say I fully appreciate it, but, you know, it's not necessarily true that only humans have agency in this co-evolutionary process. That, in a sense, um, as, as Kevin says in another of his books, you know, what is it that technology wants? And it's an interesting frame um, to think of technology like the, like as a selfish un- gene. Yeah, uh, yeah. Like a selfish gene or something. It's like this A, it's not necessarily conscious, but it's kind of this driving force. Yeah, exactly. I think technology begets technology, you know, it, it, some things become easier paths and some things become harder paths. And and so what is it that we're co-evolving with and what is it that we're co-evolving to? And um, Kevin's point of view, and, and this is, you know, his, you know, based on his background, he's a fairly, uh, I don't know if religious is the right word. I, I think he would say yes. Um, so he, he looks at things through a lens, not just a material lens, but an immaterial lens as well. And his conclusion is that, you know, what is good, right? How do you answer the question, what is good? And so his conclusion to the question of what is good is increasing optionality, right? That the more options every creature has, every person has, the more the chance to explore a wider space, to discover more interesting things to optimize for shared benefit, um, and so it's a it's an interesting it's an interesting package there uh, when we think about both both these trends, but also about this future. As you're saying, what is the future that we imagine that we want to live in, and then how do we get there? And with the understanding that our children are unlikely to have the same vision for the future that they want to live in, and their children are unlikely to share the same vision of, uh, as that, right? Sure. So, so it's a meta process, right? It's not like we're not, we think we're special because we happen to be alive right now, but everyone who's ever lived was equally special at the time they were alive. And everyone who's going to come is equally special, um, you know, in the time that they're going to be here. So I think it's yeah. easy for us to get our new tools, our new tools of understanding the depth of our knowledge, the rapid pace of innovation 
is giving us a kind of a false sense of importance um, on an exponential curve. Every part of the curve looks the same. So, you know, we're very proud of ourselves, but, you know, if you step back and think, well, what could be, you know, we've, we've got a long way to go uh, on, on all, on all fronts. And that's why it's a, it's such an interesting cultural battle uh, right now, but also, you know, in, in, in modern history between um, the status quo and what could be right between conservation and conservatism and progressivism and, and change. And it's interesting, uh, Virginia Postrel, who was the editor of, of Reason magazine for a decade or so, she wrote a book a while back called The Future and Its Enemies, uh, which I just love as a title. She, she credits her husband for coming up with the title. And what she posits is that you know, this whole po political polarization of right and left is really not the game that's being played right now. Because if you look at the extreme left and the extreme right, they, also, they, they actually agree on an awful lot of things because the status quo is what gives them power. And, and, and then change is, in effect, disempowering. So they're, they, she kind of lumps them together on one side versus, you know, progressives who believe that things can be better and that making changes is worth the risk um, as the as the true polarization of, of our time so it's a, it's a very interesting book cool I uh, there's one one piece is specifically we're talking about technology and change Peter actually you might be able to comment on this as BR uh, you know because it's it's such a different experience to actually go in there. And we were talking a little bit about graphical user interfaces. Um, I don't know, Peter, did you feel like you had like some kind of profound change in how you thought about things or, or designing software, right? I mean, because even if it's still all, all coding at the end of the day, because um, the interface, because the, the, the way you interact with the technology is so different, do you feel like it changed you from like a before and after? One strange thought I had about VR, um, pretend all three of us were in a room and you're trying to optimize the amount of space and the productivity, right? If we all had VR headsets on and headphones, you could conceivably share a very tiny space and the software could lead it so you you never bumped into each other and you would never even see or hear the other person. I don't know about smell, but um, that was one strange thought I, I had that, that VR uh, left me with. I can't remember the title, but there's a, actually a science fiction novel about a human civilization off in the future living out in, you know, multiple, multiple places in space where everyone is wired into kind of an AR, VR metaverse at, at birth, right? It's kind of, it's kind of built in and there are different populations, uh, you know, different political beliefs that are living in the same physical space, but they can't see each other <laughs> and they're routed in such a way that they don't bump into each other. Um, and it's just funny because it, it was, it triggered from what you just said that, you know, people are, are kind of playing with these ideas in the arts. Yeah. It's, it's funny, right? Cause like the, um, you know, I, I, well, something I wonder about is, you know, the cost, I think Peter Thiel talks about this, like the cost of like sending physical, 
things a, a certain distance is seems like that's it's getting more more expensive versus just digitally kind of getting something from point A to point B, right? Because like bandwidth is increasing. Um, and I kind of wonder if if at a certain point, you know, like travel, say, right, it, it'll just become a richer, cheaper, easier experience to just experience that at home uh, in VR or something versus actually physically going there, you know, because it's the relative cost would be just prohibitive. Um, and I, I mean, I know like for, for SpaceX, they've talked about having using vr for uh like long long space travel just so you're you're not you know getting claustrophobic you kind of go trick, crazy yeah. yeah you can trick your kind of brain into it so um yeah we, we talked about like the technium and, and co-evolution it's it seems like it's getting to this point where it's um i don't know it's it's like it's technology's always kind of seemed at least for me growing up looking at it like historically it seemed like it's this this uh it, it felt like tools. Now it's starting to feel more like it's a part of us. Well, you know the old saying, right? Was it who was it? Alan Kay? I can't remember who said this. He said, "Technology is anything invented after you're born." <laughs> <laughs> Interesting. And what and what is everything else then beforehand? It's just stuff. <laughs> it's just it just works. <laughs> sure. Yeah, I don't know. Yeah. So VR, I think. Um, you know, the same way that command line interfaces for, for computers did nothing for me, but graphical user interfaces kind of opened the door to being like generally useful. Um, VR, AR and VR to me are very different, uh, but both of them are the next step change function in, in how we interface our minds to the digital world. And, uh, that notion of embodiment is is just super important to the human experience, right? So look, kind of all learning is artificial until it's embodied. And that's why there's, you know, there's kind of deep thought that truly self, self I don't even want to get into the self-awareness part of it, but truly intel, intelligent AI systems, you know, general intelligence AI systems can, will never be developed in a computer they have to be developed in a robot and that robot you know that that intelligence has to be embodied it has to exist in a in a complex world that gives it uh, stimulation where there's cause and effect and it has to have agency and the ability to manipulate that world um, and and vr if you if you play vr out you're basically bringing the biological entity right human consciousness and you're embodying it in a virtual space the same way that robotics takes a, a virtual consciousness you know at some point and embodies it in the physical world that we inhabit and so we're, i think we're going to be exploring both of these directions simultaneously because they're both incredibly powerful step functions in what's possible and you know human cognition you know symbolic processing is 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 not natural to us it's 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 something we have to learn right and um it's not the most optimal path into our into our brains because it's it's you know from a sensory perspective it's, it's very poor right um but it's efficient because it's 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 compressed uh, and so as we move from symbolic 
kind of computation in the symbolic realm to computation and user experiences that are non-symbolic, but just experiential, I think we're going to be able to tap into a lot more of what makes people people uh, on all sides, right? New patterns of learning, new patterns of creation, new patterns of collaboration and communication. Uh, it's going to be, it's going to be profound. And uh, we're, we're not even scratching the surface on it now, right? But, but we're building we're building the pieces. We build the pieces we need to build the bigger pieces we need to build the thing. When you say symbolic processing, um, it's something I'm still not totally clear on. And I think probably a lot of our listeners are probably curious what you mean. I think there's there's something profound there about symbols and meaning. Um, but could you explore that a little more? Sure. Yeah. So I just mean it in the, uh, in the most uh, primitive semiotic sense, right? That there is an abstract symbol that means something to us. It's a compressed representation of some stereotypical thing, right? So you, you get you get kind of a, and that could be like a word, just just as an example, right? Well, so you, you start off with symbols that are just physical representations. They're they're not they're not alphabets, right? They're just glyphs, and you know this glyph means you know sitting on the beach in a, in the warm sun. And we just all agree that this circle with the three dots in it means that thing, right? So there's, uh, you know, that's that's how language likely developed, right? From uh, from clay marks uh, on, uh, sorry, from marks on on these clay uh, containers that held little pebbles that represented counting, right? So like twelve sheep, there'd be twelve little pebbles in this small clay ball. And at some point, people started to realize that if you just made 12 dots on the clay, you wouldn't actually have to put the pebbles inside, right? So we start, it's, writing kind of emerged out of this, uh, out of this, you know, kind of symbolic representation, like, here's a, here's a little drawing of a sheep, like a, a simple little line drawing of a sheep with 12 dots. And that means that I'm, I'm you know, that you now own these 12 sheep or something, Uh and that grew into language. And then, you know, moving to alphabets, right, to sound patterns rather than direct representations was another huge compression uh, of the symbol space. But it, it, you know, created this new burden uh, of having to be able to pack and unpack these things. So um, vocabulary's got a lot bigger. Something interesting I heard is that actually, so like Chinese, because it's, it's sort of pictographic, it, it's just a different different way of approaching codifying these sounds we make with our our mouths right into mm -hmm. symbols um but it's still roughly our brains can read and process information at the same rate so even though it's, it approaches the problem from a different angle it seems like our brains are actually the the limiting factor rather than the yeah i think i think that's absolutely right i mean when we come up against our innate cognitive limits um we have to be pretty clever to get beyond them, right? Even, even for things like, you know, what can you remember? Mm -hmm. uh, you can remember what seven plus or minus two things in short-term memory, and then you go through a, a sleep dreaming cycle, and, and things get flushed, and they get kind of folded into longer-term memory. And, but every time you recall them, you're distorting them because they're actually erased and rewritten. At least that's you know what, what some of the research seems to show. So everything 
you know, the, the fact that we're able to talk to each other and everything we say to each other and everything we think is just a reflection of the arbitrary kind of evolutionary path that we took to got that we, that we took to get to, you know, modern human cognition, but it's not, we don't represent the epitome of, of anything, right? We weren't, we're not, we're not, we're optimized to survive, right? So we're the things that survived, but as we build artificial minds, uh, and this is another of Kevin Kelly's points. It, it's not like we're trying to build an artificial human mind because what we'd really like is a huge range of different kinds of minds, right? The space of possible minds is very large and we already have lots of human minds. So it makes sense just to try to build and evolve and, and, Kind of co-evolve with lots of different kinds of minds who are you know better than we are at certain things but not at all involved in, in other things and the space of mind design you know as a as a future career path is, is really fascinating right once we get over the general problem of <laughs> we have no idea how it works um, once it becomes a, you know an engineering discipline and not a research topic uh, you know the world that's another one of those kind of step function changes in the world. And uh, we start designing minds for specific purposes. Um, anyway, there's a lot, you know, there's lots, lots of fun things. You can pull on that. You can pull on that thread for, for a long time. Sure. Yeah. The, um, you know, I mean, Peter, I've, I've been asking a few questions. Do you have any follow-ups on that? No, keep going. Sure. Um, one of the things I guess, that uh, kind of came to mind was, you know, we talk about human minds or non-human minds. Um, you know, there's, there's so much interesting research there of like, uh, you've seen that, uh, I think it was for a blind person, they attached a sensor to their tongue and it was, it was attached to a camera. And over time, they were eventually able to kind of learn how to see because the, the camera would yeah. Yeah, yeah. exactly would send signals to the, yeah. to the brain that way. Um, it's interesting to, to think of the idea that there might be more senses, right? You might have a something that attaches to something like that, but instead of to a camera, to you know, like some sentiment analysis engine on Twitter, right? And you can kind of you could literally feel what 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 the the world is feeling in a sense. What's the sentiment? Abs absolutely, absolutely. I mean, that's kind of I think the whole to some extent the whole point of VR is to be able to slip on and off sensoriums at will, right? So, you know, there's this, the famous- uh, Sorry, you called them- Philosophy paper. Sensoriums? Yeah, just, a, just to, uh, to capture the notion that different entities have a different experience of being, right? So there's a, a pretty famous paper in philosophy called, I'm gonna get the name wrong, but it's like, you know, like, what is it, what is it like to be a bat? And the author explores the notion that just the way it feels like something to be a person, right? With our hearing and our vision and our smell and our taste and our prior perception and touch, like, like there is an experience of being a human. And there's also an experience of being a bat and it's not the same experience. It feels like something to be a bat, 
but it feels like a very different thing than being a human, right? And so robots are yet another axis of, of exploration for if you take, because of the, the very wide range of sensors we have, just, just like you're talking about, the very wide range of sensors we have, before you even go to like indirect things like sentiment analysis, just of the physical world, right? So the electromagnetic spe spectrum is, is very wide and, and there are, you know, all these, I mean, whatever you believe about physics, the quantum field, quantum fields that, that we live in and, and, and things and, and gravitation um, is that you can look at the world, you know, uh, like a bumblebee's view of the world is very different than a frog's view of the world is very different than ours. And now with our satellites and with our electron microscopes and with this sensor dust that's going to be kind of everywhere in the world, like measuring things all the time, ocean probes, you know, free swimming ocean probes, um, to be able to, to pull on a sensorium uh, that's different than our own, but using VR, map it into the things that we are able to experience. Uh, it's going to just let that pattern matching part of the brain go wild because you'll be able to easily, quote unquote, see things uh, that are obvious in the raw data if only you could use the visual processing part of the brain to process it, right? So that's why, you know, data visualization, even at a primitive level, is so vital, right? Because you can look at, you know, you can look at predictive weather models at tables of data and have no idea what they mean. But then you put a picture up of like clouds on the map and it's like, oh, I get it. I see what's happening here. Uh, and so it's all this, that we're going to have all this information about the world that we need to have we need to artificially put into a form that human beings can deal with. Um, and we do that already in, in the small, but with VR, we can do that in the large. And we'll have our, our co-evolved machine learning and, and whatever comes next partners looking at the data with us, maybe finding, in fact, definitely finding interesting patterns before we do but the patterns are likely to be much too complex for us to directly understand. So our AIs are going to have to build simplified maps of that territory, maps that are designed for human cognition so we can kind of at least follow along uh, with what's happening. And that's, you know, it's another one of these, you know, careers of the future, right, is, um, is kind of quality control on these things as they're, as they're evolved and as it, they expand kind of explore the space of possible mappings uh, you know which ones are which ones are actually useful for people and which ones are, are not and, and and what direction that takes us in terms of design uh, you know all it's just there's we're not going to be less we're going to be more 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 in all of these directions some of which some of these axes of exploration just don't exist yet but you can see them, right? You can sense them coming right over the horizon. And, you know, it's always, it's always funny when people go, oh, well, technology, we're going to automate away all these jobs. What are people going to do? And, you know, to some degree, unfortunately, because of the pace of technological change, but also, but also governance changes, you know, these changes are very, very disruptive to the people that are happening 
if you're alive during these periods, they're very disruptive. And you need to be pretty clever as a governance system to be able to manage through them and not, not break down into revolution. And, and, you know, maybe it's not even possible to manage through them. Maybe it requires revolution. We, we will see. But the range of things that people will be doing in the future is so much broader uh, than the range of things that, you know, are, are paths that people see for themselves today that, uh, it, you know, it's, it's just dramatic. And so what it means to be human, if we can keep our, excuse my language, but if we can keep our shit together long enough as a civilization, you know, what it means to be human is, is going to keep changing and hopefully keep improving as we, you know, democratize access to the basics and to Kevin Kelly's point, try to maximize the optionality uh, in every person's life. Like that is a bountiful future for us to go explore. It's a very optimistic vision of where our children's children will, will, will be playing uh, in the future. Are you, yeah, that's, I mean, so many rabbit holes I want to go down. Uh, overall, would you say you're pretty optimistic though? Well, I'm an entrepreneur, so I'm <laughs> delusional, right? I'm, I'm, I'm optimistic sure. to a fault. Um, but I'm all, that's why I mentioned I, I, I'm from New York City, from, from the inner city. Uh, you know, you, you, you learn to live in reality uh, very early when you grow up in a, in a city. And so it's an interesting juxtaposition of a very grounded, gritty, realist perspective on, you know, on the day-to-day combined with this almost giddy sense of what's possible uh, in the future. And the arc of, of humans co-evolving with their technologies over the last 50,000 years or so, it's a pretty impressive arc. I mean, you know, we're, you know, for hairless monkeys, we're doing, we're doing pretty good, but we keep on, we keep on inventing new challenges for ourselves. Like, like the physical world, you know, mother nature pro- provided a set of challenges, but you know, we're, we're way into challenges of our own making now, uh, which is, which is, you know, it's both kind of depressing, uh, but it's also, it's also, you know, kind of, kind of empowering in a way that, yeah, we, that we got ourselves into these messes, which means we can get ourselves out of these messes if we, you know, if we learn as a civilization and as a, a set of interacting cultures how to, how to accomplish things together. And that, you know, circles back to the whole notion of augmentation is that to solve these challenges that we've created for ourselves, these, you know, unintended side effects of small decisions that wind up having large repercussions, we've just got to get smarter, right? We've got to continue to get smarter about the choices we make and the impacts they have. And, you know, we'll, we'll continue to make mistakes, but, you know, hopefully that our good decisions will, will outweigh our bad decisions. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully the mistakes we can come back from. Yeah, it, exactly. It, it seems like the I think you hit the nail on the head of the challenges are our own making, and it seems like we're kind of at this pivotal point, right? Where it used to be that we had to figure out how to overcome some kind of natural uh, obstacle, right? But now nowadays, I mean, we don't have predators, we don't have, uh, you know, we don't have like. I mean, just getting around places like if you, you know, if you needed to 
get from Europe to you know the United States. It took weeks or months. Um, now it's our, yeah, our predators are pathogens now. Right? Yeah, it's it's been it's our own kind of doing, right? And from like yeah, either either whether you believe it's the experimentation in the lab or if it's from the, the wet markets and just the, the wildlife trade and just kind of our interaction and, and the way we uh, I don't know I guess interface with the natural world. It seems like one one interesting fact I heard recently was that. Um, the amount of anthropogenic mass, meaning everything we've created from like metal and skyscrapers and concrete and all that in 2020 finally exceeded the amount of biomass on earth by some, yeah, some I've, estimates. I read that also. Um, even whether, whether or not that's even true, right? The fact that it's, it's comparable uh, or we're, we're kind of on that same potential scale, right? It's just, it's part of it, I think shows like the power of exponentials, but also we're, we're at this pivotal point where we got to, you know, we, we, we got to start thinking about the world and our role in it differently and, and how we can, how we can continue to live in it. How do, how do we want it to look right? Because we, we do kind of have that power now. We, if, if we, we can set our intention to be a lot of different things, what do, what do we want? Right. Right. We're, we're certainly, we're moving out of uh, hopefully we're moving out of this colonial mindset where we're explorers and exploiters and we're, we're switching to a mindset when we're doing husbandry, right? We are the caretakers. We're not, we're not, we're not here to exploit. We know how to do that. You know, so that's, that's not a challenge anymore. How do we, how do we do the, how do we do the next thing? Yeah. I mean, I, I was just researching up on, um, and Peter, you, I think we, we talked about this briefly. It was the, uh, like the, at the end of the ice age, we kind of hunted a lot of these, these animals to extinction. Right. And so it, but then that's a, that's a very different mindset from, like you said, husbandry. Like we, we raise them, we actually like have to take care of them. And, you know, if you, if you kill too many and eat too many of them, you're just not going to have any left at a certain point. So you, you start right. thinking about the future. You start predicting what's going to happen. Uh, yeah. Well, the whole notion of scarcity is, um, you know, is, is really interesting, right? Because, you know, oftentimes, or at least historically, you know, the, the battles over land and battles over resources and battles over population, there was always some element of, of scarcity in it, right? Someone wanted something that someone else had. It was a zero sum game. Um, and you know, the, the only way to, the only way to get it was to go and, and, and take it. Um, but that's, you know, <laughs> I think there are interesting signs um, that, a post-scarcity society, again, we still have to deal with, you know, even distribution and, and there's millions of challenges, right? But a post-scarcity society, um, you know, what would be an early indicator of that? Well, if you look in the digital domain, right, digital goods aren't, aren't scarce, right? So you can have a billion copies of an image or a billion copies of a video or, or, or any other digital expression. And so, what we're doing now is we're using NFTs to create this artificial scarcity, right? <laughs> so I really actually, about to ask about that. <laughs> I, right. So I actually take that as, again, one of these over the horizon changes as a very early sign that we as a civilization are starting to realize that a post-scarcity world is in reach and we need to create new mechanisms to create artificial value so that these these urges and interplays of the human animal have a place to occur that isn't dangerous to uh, 
to ourselves as a civilization, right? So move, moving them into this into this virtual world and and, and having these uh, you know interesting interesting governance structures around them uh, is is fascinating. So I, I take that as a positive, uh, not because there's this you know bizarre manipulation and speculation about you know buying and selling these things right now, but because that Tulips. we we sent we sense that we need this that we'll need this in the future, that scarcity is important to, to the management of human civilizations. Um, but in a, in a post-scarcity world, we have to manufacture them rather than inherit them from nature. Well, it's an interesting question, and I, um, I wanted to explore it more in, in a, uh, I guess, just some other format. Uh, but, you know, the, the question of value, right? And it ties into, you know, I think there's, there's levels to that question. There's values, like, on a metaphysical or kind of cultural level, like what, what do we think is important? Obviously there's very physical things like, you know, you need food and water to survive. Uh, so it's like that hierarchy of needs. Um, but you know, like the notion of scarcity in a digital world is somewhat antithetical to the idea of like digital goods, right? You can just replicate the bits and send them across. And it's, it, it didn't really make sense to, you know, like have to pay for, every single every single like video or movie so like that's why you're seeing a lot more like streaming and subscription services um and so i i kind of my mindset was totally well make it as abundant as possible make all college courses free like try to figure out how do you get as much access to as many people as possible but i do think there is something to <laughs> you know it's a crude comparison but only fans for example um it's they created this sort of artificial scarcity but that also created um a market in and of itself, you know, where if you didn't have that, there wouldn't be the incentives to maybe go ahead and produce that, that good. Right. And we see that obviously OnlyFans is mainly for pornography. Right. But I mean, first internet image that was sent, right. It was, I think it was a, a, a nude photo or a dirty photo of some kind. Um, so it's interesting to see kind of how we'll shift our mindset around, like you said, scarcity and, and um, kind of, using it in a way maybe that's positive um even though we're kind of in this world that's this post scarce right like what how, we got to be strategic right. with how we use it right yeah so you know as as you know to the extent you think that traditional career paths are going to be significantly disrupted by technological innovation um you know people need a sense of of worth, right? They need to feel as if they're contributing in a substantial way to to the society that they live in. And you know, if we if we can transition from contributions being related to hours of labor to contributions being um, experiences, then then you can see a path for a very vibrant economy of what we consider immaterial virtual goods, right? Like beyond Fortnite and their billion dollar a quarter, you know, basically selling little bitmaps to people to put on their avatars. Um, you know, again, there's these signals that are you know pretty obvious in the world right now that what we consider, you know, games. Uh, and what what people call this the metaverse, right? Whatever that thing is that's coming, um, which is VR and embodied and, and, and all the rest, 
uh, whether our productive activities can take place there and not just entertainment activities and, and whether those things, you know, blur to some extent. Um, but getting, getting back to the notion of scarcity, you can also think about uniqueness and, um, you know, streaming, you mentioned streaming music, streaming music has had a, a decimating effect on the music industry, especially on musicians. Uh, Jaron Lanier, I don't know if you read any of, any of Jaron's work, but Jaron has done, um, he's a musician as well as a computer scientist. Um, he's done some research on employment in the U.S., government statistics on employment in the U.S. for full-time musicians. And it's fallen by 90 plus percent since the internet came along because, well, for obvious reasons. And so, you know, the question is, how do we, you know, what's an equitable way of rewarding people for the creation of artifacts that are, you know, represented, that, that can be represent, represented digitally? And so, you know, what's happened since then for bands and, and, and performers with, with, with some following is that, the, you know, revenue is now coming from live performances and merchandise and not from the sale of the music itself. And the record labels finally figured out they, they thought they were in the business of selling music. They were actually in the business of selling pieces of plastic. And when you take the pieces of plastic away, it's like, oh, we've got to figure out who we are in this in this new world. Um, and so the whole the whole artificial scarcity thing, uh, you know, in the NFT space is interesting there. But the but the experience space, right? You know, the research for between you know my generation and and you know surrounds and, and your generation of surrounds is this movement from uh, owning goods uh, as a, as a major use of of um, of earnings to experiential um, you know ex ex experiences that don't necessarily give you a, a physical artifact but give you something that you you take away uh, personally as a big focus of how people want to invest their their earnings and live music you know who can who can say what's to come but human beings have been getting together to make and enjoy music for a long time and you know i can't speak for anyone else but listening to a recording is not the same thing as being in a concert right so I think there's plenty of opportunities for these for these kind of scarce uh, experiences in, in in many different fields, not just not just the the few that were that were kind of that we think of you know naturally. Uh, and maybe we'll invent some new art forms that require not just shared experiences but shared participation. Uh, I think that's another really interesting area. And again, video games, you know, very early indicators here. But if you look at things like, you know, Second Life, where the the creator tools were, they were a little challenging to like Roblox, right? Which which just just IPO'd for what thirty nine billion dollars, um, where basically kids nine to twelve year olds, I guess, is the focus, where kids go in and build miniature video games out of these fairly simple parts. And then share and sell their works with 
with others, right? So, um, you know, or, or, um, or, you know, other forms of creator monetization, right, that are happening, whether it's like Substack with, with newsletters or YouTube with, with, with ads and videos or, uh, you know, Twitter is now adding, you know, super, super follows, you know, pay for extra tweets. And, you know, they've rolled up a newsletter uh, company called Review that monetizing these small creators is huge signals about the potentially the shape of the future uh, in this space. And, and so we're exploring it now. We're trying to figure it out, you know, whether it's games or creators or otherwise. But um, it's, there's so much going on there now, and there's been enough success now that it seems like it's going to be a pretty fruitful, uh, pretty fruitful path. And uh, Ben Thompson, who does the uh, Stratechery newsletter, he's a technology strategist and analyst who writes about the industry. Um, you know, he, how long it was now, six, seven years ago, maybe? he started one of the first kind of paid newsletters, uh, you know, in the all digital, in the all digital world. And, um, you know, he's more recently just started uh, a paid podcast called Dithering with uh, John Gruber from uh, Daring Fireball fame. And so monetizing newsletters, monetizing podcasts, monetizing uh you know, creations, Etsy lets you monetize kind of novel, scarce, physical goods. But again, it's this, this creator economy, this democratization of creation and monetization that this, that this infrastructure we're building enables, um, you know, I think is a really, uh, you know, it's a really positive sign for, for the future, that there's a there there in moving from atoms to bits in more and more of the activities that we do, uh, you know, whether or not we're all going to be living in rabbit warrens with VR headsets because we need to be packed together or whether we're going to, you know, kind of figure it out and, and get to a sustainable population where people can have, you know, a decent quality of life in the physical world, which I, I believe we will, um, that this is a new frontier for us as a society. And we can take some of the things that we do in the physical world that can be destructive to ourselves, um, you know, each other and, and, and the planet and uh, do them in a place where they're, where they're not destructive, right? Where they're either benign or, or constructive in some new way. And because everything will be happening in the digital realm, going back to that notion of memory again, um, you know, with, with a better memory of what happens, then we can get potentially better at exploring alternative futures, doing prediction, having a greater possible state space for the species, uh, and finding ever increasing better outcomes for our collective journey together as a species. Right. So I, you know, I guess I am optimistic. <laughs> <laughs> that's a good, uh, I think that's a great note to end on then, Scott. Um, really appreciate you coming on. But uh, oh, cool. I've really enjoyed it. Thanks so much for inviting me. Yeah, it was a lot of fun. Uh, you know, always, always find, you know, talking to you, wealth of knowledge. Uh, I'd love to have you on again sometime in the future. Um, any kind of parting thoughts, any final ways, if anyone listening interested in getting in touch with you or learning more about stuff that you're working on? Um, hmm. So uh, t 
take a look at popdoc.io, P-O-P-D-O-C.io, if you're interested in uh, kind of getting involved, again, very early, but in this new approach to bringing cognitive enhancement and understanding uh, to people and, and, and groups and, and communities. It's, uh, I think it represents an important path forward. Otherwise, I, I wouldn't be working on it. And uh, would love to see other people either coming along on the journey with us or doing something in a similar space. I think it's, it needs to be explored. We need to get this right to be able to, uh, to kind of accelerate our path towards uh, positive, positive tomorrows and, and navigate the bumpy road we have uh, in the present. Um, we have um, a bunch of uh, blog posts that will be coming relatively soon. We've been pretty quiet, but they'll be coming relatively soon that kind of lays out, you know, what it is we're trying to do and why we think it's important. So if you just go to the site and sign up, we'll, we'll ping you when those, uh, when those get available. Awesome. Cool. Uh, you know, thanks again. Any uh, parting thoughts, Peter? No, thank you so much, Scott. It's been a great conversation. Hey, thanks so much for having me. All right, episode 13 done. Yeah.